turn to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, if you need a Bible and don't have one, there should be a black hardbound Bible in the pew there. And uh, Revelation 21 is at the very end. It begins on page 1041 of that Bible. Uh, We'll begin reading there in just a minute. I did want to tell you that next Sunday we will begin a new series of studies in the Gospel of Luke, beginning in the Gospel of Luke. It is a long book. It will be a long series. We will take some breaks along the way, but I'm looking forward to uh, getting into the Gospel of Luke together. Uh, Today, we complete our study from garden to glory, and uh, having spanned the book, the whole 66 books of the Bible, as it were, uh, we come now to the end, and the end of the story of the Bible turns our eyes to the future. And what I want to do is actually read all of Revelation 21 and 22, um, because I think setting that in our minds uh, is so important as we begin to think about these things. So, beginning Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, this is what the Spirit says through His Word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. 
And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the city, healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. 
The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, Come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you. Feed our souls. Show us truth. Convict us, encourage us, strengthen us, and help us that we might hear and love and believe and live according to the words we hear. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. What motivates us to live as faithful Christians? How can we endure slander and opposition? What can spur us on to fight false teaching? What is it that could keep our love for God and our love for others from growing cold? What do we need to resist the hypocrisy of appearing to be spiritually alive, but actually being dull and lifeless? Where do we find energy to remain faithful when we know how very weak we are and the hits are going to keep on coming? How do we resist tolerating the sin that flourishes all around us? What drives us in the battle against apathy and laziness and complacency and indifference? in the Christian life? Well, we could answer all of those questions in a number of different ways, but one answer actually applies to them all, and that is we need a vision of our future hope. We need the vision of what God has in store for us to look forward to the end of history when God will bring His world to His appointed end, and that end will be glorious for all who trust in the Lord Jesus and all who endure and persevere in that faith to the end. These two chapters are part of the vision of that great future. But they don't just appear out of nowhere. The entire book of Revelation is like a symphony that is catching on you. It seems to grow and, it, and, 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 and 
There are sights in this book, and there are sounds in this book. There are notes of triumph in this book. There are notes of distress in this book. But God conducts every one of the notes, and it crescendos from the present into the future all the way to this great vision that boggles our minds and captures our hearts. So as we look at these two chapters in the context of the entire book, we see that the Christian's future hope motivates present faithfulness. The Christian's future hope motivates present faithfulness. That future hope is seen in a few ways in the last chapters of Revelation. The first way it's seen is in future victory. I mean, the Bible is very clear that life is a war, that the world is at war as it were. Some of us who are praying for our sons or our daughters or our uh, cousins or our parents very much know that there is a war going on for their soul. But in the end, there will be no war of any such kind. God will have final victory. And this future victory, in part, will be over sin, over sin and all it brings. In chapters 21 and 22, seven evils are done away with in this new heaven and new earth. Most are fairly self-explanatory, but one doesn't hit us immediately is something we go, oh, good thing that won't be there. And that is in chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw the new heaven and, the new earth, and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, why is the sea mentioned as something that is no more in this glorious future? Well, in ancient times, people did not know how to handle the sea. They had these tiny little ships, and their technology was not like ours. The, the sea was mysterious, and, and it was treacherous, and it was murky, and it was unruly, and it was dangerous. The sea is a place of chaos and evil in the Bible. In fact, if you go backwards in Revelation in chapter 13, out of the sea emerges this great and powerful beast with authority and evil intent who begins to blaspheme God and declares war on God's people. But here in the end, none of that chaos, none of that evil. The other things, as I said, are fairly self-explanatory, but let me point them out. Chapter 21, verse 4, death is no more. Mourning is no more. Crying is no more. Pain is no more. Chapter 22, verse 3 says, curse is no more. Nothing will be cursed. There will be no curse on that day. And then chapter 22, verse 5, night will be no more. It will all be the light of the Lord and the light of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin and all of its reverberating effects are defeated on that day. 
They are gone. They are nowhere to be found. They are never to be experienced again. That's fantastic. That's glorious. You're going to be glad when chaos is gone? You're going to be glad when turmoil is gone? You're going to be glad when we don't have to line pews with Kleenex for services? You're going to be glad when pain is gone? You're going to be glad when the curse of sin is obliterated from our experience? Where darkness runs and finds no home. And that final victory was won when Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It'll be experienced on that day. The victory was sure at the resurrection. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 says, isn't it? When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, that is this day. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? These are taunts. These aren't just, these are not genuine questions. This is the guy on the basketball court looking you in the eyes and saying, What you got? And when Jesus looks in the eyes of death and says, What you got? They got nothing. Death will be no more. Victory over sin. Victory over the world. Now, in the Bible, the world can be you. The word world can be used for a number of things. Uh, 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 one of those is to talk about a world system, a world philosophy that is in rebellion against God. And in the book of Revelation, the world is pictured as a city, Babylon, full of uncleanness, a demonic city, a prostitute that lures its victims in. But in chapter 18, if you want to just flip back there, if not, you, you, it's chapter 18, verse 2, and then starting in 21. But here's what happens in the end. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Chapter, uh, verse 21 of chapter 18. Babylon the great city will be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, all the revelry of the, the world celebrating its worldliness will be heard in you no more. And the craftsmen of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the, the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Fallen is Babylon. Fallen is a world system that opposes God at every turn that has been seen in a variety of places and in a variety of ways and in a variety of empires through the, through the years. But it is all one spirit. It will be fallen on that day. Victory over sin, victory over the world, victory over enemies. 
over enemies. If you look at chapter 19, you'll see, beginning in verse 11, what we have is the risen Christ appears on a white horse, and he has a sword in his mouth for battle. Listen to uh, verse 19 to 21. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him, that is, Christ, who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two, were the beast and the prophet, were thrown into alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And then when you get to chapter 20, what you learn is that it's not just the prophet and the beast who are in this pit, it is the devil himself. And it's not just the devil himself, it is death and Hades all in the lake of fire. This permanent punishment from God against all rebellion that never ends, never ends. But friends, it's not just these kinds of cosmic enemies, if you will, who will be there. Because the Bible says actually that we are all born as enemies of God. We all join in the rebellion. We love Babylon. We love it. And we want it. And we live there. And we relish the worldly system. And we are glad to oppose God. You know why? Because He wants to tell me what I can do and what I cannot do. He wants to tell me who I actually am. I am the master of my fate. We join in, in the world's rebellion. And the Bible is very clear that those who remain His enemies, who will not turn from their sin, who will not call on the Lord Jesus Christ to save them, who will not submit themselves to the Lord, will share in this same defeat. Chapter 20, verse 14 and 15, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Chapter 21, verse 8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, friend, it need not be that way for you. The end of the book invites you to something different. Chapter 22, verse 17, the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, Come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The the, the invitation of the book of Revelation is not to become religious. The invitation of the book of Revelation is not to just think about these things or to consider them or to find them intellectually interesting. The invitation of 
the book of Revelation is not, hey, you really need to do better if you're going to get out of this lake of fire business. That is not the invitation of, of the book of Revelation. The invitation of the book of Revelation is, come. And in order to come to Jesus, you must leave everything that you once were. Just as you came here this morning by leaving home, you must leave the place that you have made your home in your sin. You must leave it and you must come to Jesus. Come to Him, and He will give you the water of life. That thirst is not going to be satisfied by drinking from the wells that the world offers. That's like going to the ocean and drinking salt water. You think you're doing all right because you're drinking something wet, but that salt water just makes you thirstier, and in the end, it will kill you. You need not remain an enemy of God, friend. Jesus says all who come to him, he will in no way cast out. But on that day, there will be no more coming. The moment will have passed. You must come now. Do not wait. Come. Because in the end, all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ will escape that defeat and will enjoy the final victory that Christ shares with us. Victory over sin and the world and our enemies. The second thing we see is future glory. The beauty, the brilliance, the wonder of these chapters is beyond imagination, isn't it? I mean, we see, for, we see the glory of the new Jerusalem. The angel takes, takes John up to a high mountain so he can see this. And verse 11 says, It has the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And it has 12 gates, and, and on the gates are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it has 12 foundations with the names of 12 apostles. And it has all these jewels, and it is gorgeous beyond all imagination. It is the new Jerusalem. Now, in the Bible, Jerusalem can either speak of a location or of a people. So like in Matthew chapter 3, as John the Baptist is ministering and baptizing people, chapter 3 verse 5 says that Jerusalem went out to see him. Now, the, the streets and the buildings did not move. The point is that the people went out to see Him. And even though we have this architectural description, this is not just a mere place. This is a people. Verse 2 says it, she, this is as a bride adorned for her husband. And in verse 9, it says, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And when you read your New Testament, the wife of the Lamb is not bricks and mortar and streets and gates. The wife of the Lamb is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we're talking about here. This church will be adorned and prepared and made beautiful for that day. Now, I've done a lot of weddings, and I can tell you that it's amazing how many hours a woman will spend preparing for the ten minutes that we're going to be standing here to exchange vows. 
she gets adorned. She gets prepared. She is focused on what is coming, and she wants to be ready, not primarily for the camera, not primarily for the families, not primarily for the crowd. She wants, when she opens that door, she wants to step into it and see Him. That's why she gets adorned. For Him. For Him. And here we have the people of God, the beautiful bride, made ready for Him. For the Lord Jesus Christ. For the Lamb. It's a beautiful place, isn't it? A beautiful place and a beautiful people. All for Him. So that we'll lock eyes with Him. Walk down the aisle to Him. And dwell with Him who saved us forever. But unlike the bride on her wedding day, who admittedly sometimes has a team of 60 or 70 people making her look a particular way, uh, unlike the bride, we don't, we don't prepare ourselves for that day. Actually, Jesus prepares us for that day. That's what Ephesians 5 says. Ephesians 5 says, Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, no matter how filthy we come to Jesus, He cleanses us by His grace through His death, and He prepares us through this life to be spotless, to be perfected on that day, to have souls that are more beautiful than we could possibly imagine here that we might dwell with Him. It's a glorious city. Verses 24 to 26 say that the kings of the earth come in, the nations bring their glory in, all the peoples, all the peoples, tongues, tribes, nations, all the people we are seeking to reach with the gospel even now through our partnerships. They'll all be represented there. They'll all bring their cultures there. They'll all bring their languages there. All to Him. The glory of the new Jerusalem. The future glory of fellowship with God, perfect fellowship with God. Look at verses 15 and 16. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. Now, I assume you don't know what a stadia is. Just like when I got to Revelation 21, I was like, what is a stadia? So we have to go find that out. Well, 12,000 stadia is essentially 1,380 miles. Now, that's hard to put your mind around, right? So let's say you get in your car and you go west on, on I-70, all right? And you go through Illinois, through Missouri through Kansas, which is like an eternity. I mean, it, it feels like...
Kansas never ends. Like when Dorothy said, we're not in Kansas anymore, I'm wondering how she got out. But you get, you get all the way through Kansas, and you get all the way through Colorado, and when you see the sign that says, welcome to Utah, that's about 1,380 miles. The point of telling us this is not so that we'll get out our measuring tape, though. The point isn't one, two, three. That is not the point. The point is to be blown away by the glory and wonder and perfection of this place. It is a cube, the most perfect shape in all of, all of the ancient world. But even more than that, the cube was the shape of the Holy of Holies in the temple. On that day, it's as if, look, it is as if we are so bound to God. Our, our fellowship with God is so perfect that to speak of the people of God is to speak of the presence of God. You remember in the, in the beginning we were cast out of the presence of God because of our sin. And there was an angel with a flaming sword guarding the way back in. No one could get back in. None of us can get back in on our own. But then at the death of Jesus what happened? The veil of the temple was torn in two. The veil that kept the Holy of Holies separated is torn. The sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ opens up a way back in. Jesus is the way, he said. And here, we're there. The very presence of God Nothing will ever hinder it again. Doesn't it just sadden you when, when your neglect of spiritual disciplines or your, or your, or your prayerlessness or your uh, uh, toleration of sin in your own life, doesn't it just make you sad when, when you, you know that your fellowship with God is disturbed, that it's messed up, that you're not walking right? Now imagine a life where that never happens again. Not for one moment will our fellowship with God be disturbed. 21 verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. And then there is the glory of a new garden. The glory of a new garden. Chapter 22 begins with a picture of the river of water of the water of life running through this city and the tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The, the story of the Bible started with a garden. Really, we could have just said the series is called From Garden to Garden because that's what we have from the first garden to this garden, to a permanent garden, to a glorious garden, to a garden where sin will never disturb, to a garden where the serpent will never slither his way in ever again because he is in the lake of fire in permanent punishment from God. And there's a river in this first garden. There was a river in the first garden. There's a river in this garden, and it's always flowing with the water of life. And there's a tree of life. It was in the first garden as well, and it is here. And its fruit is ours for the taking. 
Sin had banished us from the tree of life, but Jesus Christ took our banishment on the tree of death so that we would have access to the tree of life once again. And there's never a moment when you're going to show up and the fruit isn't beautiful and blossoming. Life is always blossoming there, always blooming, always wonderful. Jesus came, you remember John 10, to give us life and to give it abundantly. You know what this tree is? The fulfillment of that promise. Life, life without end, life in abundance, life eternal. Isn't that glorious? The glory of the new Jerusalem, the, the glory of perfect fellowship with God, the glory of this new garden. Can you even begin to imagine it? No, you can't. So there is victory, glory, and last reward. Now, there are a few places in these chapters that speak of the reward. I'm just going to focus on one. Verse 7 of chapter 21 says, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now, who is this one who conquers? I mean, that sounds like next-level superhero Christian, right? I mean, if somebody's conquering something, that sounds like somebody who's very strong, who's very able, who's very capable, who's like gone above and beyond. But actually... This is just a way to talk about true Christians. John actually uses this language in his letters. Listen to 1 John 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The word overcomes there is the same Greek word as conquers in Revelation. To overcome is to conquer. And who is it that does this? Everyone born of God. Those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But listen, just listen to the word, overcome, conquer. Does that sound like a cakewalk to you? No. If you're going to overcome something, you're not talking about a second dessert after lunch today. I can overcome. I can conquer. No. Well, you may be able to, but that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the fact that this faith by which we walk, being born of God, having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, is something that through this world will be opposed. It will be tested. It will be tried. It will be stretched. It's not just, hey, um, did you ever walk an aisle and, and, and pray a prayer? It's not, I mean, this isn't like that feel-good time when your friends were like, hey, hey, you should believe in Jesus. Hey, hey, you should believe in Jesus. And we're kind of peer pressuring our friends to go forward at, at the camp or at the VBS or at the service or the, at the whatever. We're going to sing the 14th verse of Just As I Am. We're going to see if we can't get that last person in there today. It's not that at all. Oh, it is genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is something that comes into our life at a moment in time. It is when God gives us grace and opens our eyes and we run to Jesus and we cling to Him with all our might. And yes, that happens in gloriously in a number of, of, of stories and different ways in those stories. 
However, what he's saying when he says the one who overcomes, he's not just saying, hey, you just need to believe in Jesus uh, to get to heaven. Just at some point, just believe in him. He's saying you need to keep believing in him. You need to keep trusting him through all of life until you get to heaven. This is a faith that obeys the Lord, especially when it's hard. This is a faith that clings to truth in a world of lies. This is a faith that keeps going when everything's against you. It overcomes. It conquers. And the one who is born of God, the one who truly believes in the Lord Jesus, overcomes, believes to the end, keeps going. And what is the promise? God says, this is your heritage. The new earth, victory, perfect fellowship, access to the tree of life, all of those things. We read of these folks in 22 verse 4, they will see his face and, on, and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more and they will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever. That is amazing. The victory and the glory and the reward are overwhelming and hard to comprehend. And actually, I think that is part of the point to realize that our future hope is far greater than we can possibly imagine. But my question for you is this. Why is this written here? Why did, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ raised saying, write this down, why is this written? Why would Jesus command this of him? Well, it certainly gives comfort when we grieve the loss of those who love the Lord Jesus. Maybe as we've gone along, you've thought of those, some of those folks. And the hope that even still awaits them, even as they're in the presence of the Lord, the future hope of raised and glorified bodies in a new heaven and new earth. It gives us hope as we see the horror of multiple wars and mass shootings and natural disasters. It gives us hope as we wrestle with the reality of our own mortality, our own death. And yet none of these is the explicit purpose that John penned the book of Revelation. And just to be clear for all of us who are wondering, John is not writing so that we can make really fancy charts out of the book of Revelation. He was not hoping that the churches who read this would put charts up on the walls in the homes where they met. He is not writing this so they would pull out their newspaper and what he sent them and try to draw lines between this and that. He was not writing it so they would try to figure out the exact timing of when Jesus is going to return. But then why did he write it? You stay right there in chapter 22. I'm going to read a verse from the beginning of Revelation and the, be- and the end of Revelation, okay? Chapter 1, verse 4 says this, John, 
to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. Got that? And then the end says, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Now what's that sound like to you? Where else in the New Testament do you have a name and then to some church or to some sets of churches and then a grace and peace greeting and then at the end of it you have the grace of Jesus be with you, the grace and, grace and peace be with you, all those things. Where is it? Well, if you've read Paul's letters lately, you've seen it. Now that may blow your mind because this doesn't read anything like Paul's letters, does it? This doesn't read like Paul's letters at all. And yet it begins and ends like it's saying, this is a letter-type message being sent to you. And that's helpful because this book was written for particular people in particular situations with a particular purpose. In chapter 1, verse 11, the Lord Jesus lays out who it is that He wants this writing to go to to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. This was meant for these churches in Asia Minor. And everything I asked you at the beginning about being motivated to stay faithful as Christians, everything I mentioned is in the messages that the Lord Jesus gives to those folks. Ephesus loved truth, but their love had gone cold. Smyrna was suffering for the faith. Pergamum had folks falling for false teaching. Thyatira tolerated sin in the church. Sardis had a good reputation but were lifeless. Philadelphia was faithful but weak and facing more. Laodicea was self-sufficient and complacent and apathetic. And the risen Christ spurs them all on and calls them to repent. And in six out of seven of those letters, do you know what he says? To the one who conquers, I will. And where he fills in those blanks, you can draw lines from those letters to chapters 21 and 22 of this book. In other words, the risen Christ is speaking through John to tell these people, keep the faith, persevere, live holy lives, hold on to sound doctrine, don't give up and don't give in. Cling to the Lord Jesus Christ to the very end. The book of Revelation was written to motivate faithfulness in Christians. Not to tickle our fancies about future events. It was so that we would live a particular way right now. It shows us our God and His sovereign control over all of history. And it reminds us the future isn't up in the air. God's plan can't be thwarted. I mean, we are brokenhearted and even angry as we look at the state of the world and as we look at the chaos all around us and as we look at the advance of evil. But Revelation tells us this is not all that there is. God is in control. God will intervene. God will punish evil. God will establish peace and justice. God will remake the world. God will restore the universe, even these physical bodies. And He will reward all those who trust in Him all the way. So press on, Christian. The new Jerusalem is coming. Hold on tight. Persevere in the faith, church. 
It may look grim and evil may look like it's advancing and the church may look like it's shrinking and diminishing and in trouble. But look to the Lord. Look to his ordained future. Look to the promise and press on. Persevere. Stay steady. The story of the Bible ends with hope. A glorious vision of our future hope, of all that will be ours and is promised and is ours in a sense right now in Christ. And that vision should motivate us. The storyline of the Bible should motivate us to be faithful right now, to live for the Lord Jesus, come what may, until He returns. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we are in awe of you and of what you've done for us in Christ and of the future that you promise us. And we pray that we will take your word as it is written. That while we study it and seek to understand it in all its parts, that we would not miss why we've been given this glorious last book of the Bible. And that we would hear of all your great glory and all that you have done and are doing and will do. And we will stay faithful. Give us eyes of faith to see the end as motivation for the present. And give us grace to heed the call of the future and stay faithful in the present. And as the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. God, call out more. Give them that hope. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to uh, sing.